Hello. I took two naps today, so I'm ready to learn. I'm awake. All right. That's good to be well rested. I can see that with my first period kiddos. that <laughs> They don't always achieve that. And I feel you. It's like when you're a kid, you can, it seems like you can pretty much stay up till two and then go to school and it kind of sucks, but it's not so bad. I don't know. Like I couldn't do that these days. No, there's no way I could. If I don't get like at least six hours, I'm just not a person. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's jump into it though. Since you're, since you're well rested and we got a lot to cover. Let's do it. We're going to start the beginning of a two part series. It was just so much that I was already like doing the research. I'm like, nope, this is going to be two, <laughs> two parts. I think that's a good call. Yeah, um, because we are going to be talking about the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Uh, what do you know about Vietnam? I know we had a war. That's about it. All right, good. So you're a typical American. <laughs> I know I like the food, and we had a war. Yeah, all right, very American then. <laughs> uh, all right, so jumping in, why should we learn about it? For one, that's a good point. It is oftentimes overlooked. I think in the West and at least in America, I don't really know exactly how aware of it people are in other Western Europe or capitalist states. Mm -hmm. We learned that, yeah, there was a war back in the sixties and seventies that we were in. You, you know, you might get different interpretations of that war, whatever, but like, it's all kind of American centric, you know, definitely. Another reason I think is because it is one of the existing socialist states in our modern world. I mean, I didn't realize it was still socialist. Like, that's how little I knew about it. Okay, and, and we'll get to this later when we talk about part two and stuff in its more modern era. It faces some of the criticisms that China faces in terms of, like, more modernization or reforms and stuff of its economy. But it is still, you know, governed by a party that's like, yeah, we're trying to, they actually say we're trying to get to socialism. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> that's, that's a big step up. Well, you know, we'll t we'll... We'll take a closer look at like what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, also, I guess I agree that I would like to have a government that was like, <laughs> we're trying to do socialism. <laughs> That'd be impressive at this point. And then when I criticize them and they're like, you know, you're, you're not doing socialism. It's <laughs> no, people don't look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so I think we'll be able to learn a lot in terms of from its struggles to to come into existence. Uh, from its developmental struggles. And we can also learn um, later from its efforts to like adapt and, and develop socialism given its unique situation. Cool. Uh, so overall, we'll be covering a lot of stuff. We'll be looking especially at imperialism. Yeah, that'll go. Friend of the show, imperialism. <laughs> friend of me. He's like a friend that shows up all the time, but you don't actually like him. Yeah, and it's a he. It's definitely let's, a dude. Let's be honest. Absolutely. It's always swinging that dick around. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we'll see some echoes of open veins of Latin America, right? That's one of our touchstones. Mm -hmm. Except this is Southeast Asia. Okay. We'll see people, you know, fighting bravely for their freedom. We'll eventually see all, you know, lots of twists and turns in that story. It's a super broad survey overall. This is going to be part one of the overview of Vietnam's history in the modern era. Part one will cover Vietnam from its time as a French colony until it gains its effective independence. Okay. Then part two will cover the lead up to the Vietnam War to the present day. Okay. Sounds good. Overall, it's probably going to be kind of one of our springboard episodes. 
there are several points of which I'm like, damn, that could be, we could talk about that. You know, we could talk about this guy. Hell yeah. Do you have any questions already that you're like, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get to this? Well, now that you made the open veins comment, I'm curious about like what kind of resources they were like extracted for and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely cover the resource part here in just a bit. Starting with Vietnam's time as a French colony. That starts in 1858. Okay. It's the mid-19th century, the time of the Second French Empire. Mm. Uh, under Napoleon III. Uh, yeah, that A guy. pompous buffoon. <laughs> uh, he started conquering, or he personally, his army started conquering <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> sweat around. Excuse me, you're conquered now. <laughs> Vietnam was an independent monarchy at the time. Mm-hmm. They get conquered by the second french empire it's yeah classic come in conquer the place you start with the cochin china campaign okay uh and then the tonkin campaign which by that point there they've moved on to be the third french republic but these are just like you know campaigns of conquest that come in they conquer part of the country cochin china is like the southern part mm, okay of what we think of as vietnam today okay and then tonkin is like the northern part of what we think of as Vietnam today. And in the middle, you have what they called at the time, Anam. Okay. Uh, which they also conquered in one of those campaigns. Not sure which one. Okay. Uh, A lot of conquering. F- yeah. <laughs> Question. The mm-hmm. French Third Republic, is that the Les Mis one? <laughs> I'm always asking which French was the Les Mis one. Which French? When did Les Mis, let's see, when did Les Mis happen? When did Les Mis happen? I mean, when when did it, the contents of it, of it. True story. I mean, it's based on something, right? Ah, I mean, yeah, we had name drop people in it. It's based They're like, that on guy, he's going to save us. Oh, no, Ju- that guy's dying. The June Rebellion, 1832 in Paris. Mm, no, this one's happened That's in 1870. Way, yeah. Okay, cool. And Just even checking. the Second French Empire is after that. Damn, okay. So... That's already, that's old news by this point. Old news. Okay. But still, like, I, my point was, I guess, that when you hear French Republic, you're like, oh, they must, like, be more democratic or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, nah, they still do an imperialism. Oh, yeah. France was <laughs> imperial. We're, we're, we're talking about French imperialism for this episode, pretty yeah. much. I feel like they get a pass a lot of the time because of, like, Western-centric views of, like, oh, England did imperialism because, like, China and, like, you know, the empire spread across the world or whatever. But, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like unless you have studied, like, African history or Vietnamese history, like, France gets a pass in a lot of people's minds, I think, as not being as bad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, that's why when we were were kids, we watched (laughs) Babar, which was all about... Like the French Empire sort of stuff. I mean, oh, they had no. like all the little French like soldiery kind of guys in that in right. Africa and stuff. You know. <gasps> oh no, Babar was a colonialist, like sub imperialist ruler. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the deal was. I haven't studied. I mean, the he's politics native because he's an elephant. So yeah, I haven't studied the politics of Babar, but <laughs> it was one of our adored oh, shows Babar. as children. So hopefully, hopefully, if we go back and look at it, it's good. <laughs> We'll see. It was subtly anti He was a king. Well, yeah. All right. So back to the real story. Um, <laughs> France also took over neighboring countries like Cambodia and Laos. And eventually they merged all this together 
into a super colony called French Indochina. Okay, I've heard of that. And that was around 1887. And, okay, why were they doing this? Yeah. One, there was kind of a religious element to it. So Mm. there were Christian missionaries Mm. uh, throughout. And sometimes they get persecuted and stuff. And the French were like, oh, we're going to go in and protect them. (laughs) Okay. But also, what was the real reason? The money reason? Yeah. Also, there was the money reason. Everybody (laughs) else was scrambling all over the place. The time period called new imperialism, where they're all getting empire, you know, imperial possessions all over the place, building their empires. I'm picturing new imperialism as like a bad cereal box, like new imperialism now with more blood. Hell yeah. It's it's just new Coke, you know. And <laughs> they rebranded. Yeah. Imperialism classic. <laughs> uh, Coke's a good example of imperialism, considering they do death squads and stuff. That's so. very true. But back to this, the real reason is competition with those other empires. And that competition is for resources, mm-hmm. uh, for more natural resources just to exploit, more markets to develop and sell your shit to. It's what Lenin talked about as imperialism being the the higher stage of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So what was France doing in Indochina at the time uh, was trying to bleed it dry of yeah. resources. Uh, they even categorized it. French uh, government officials had different categories of colonies that they had, mm-hmm. one of which was the colony of exploitation. Like they just called it that? Yeah, this was what a colony of exploitation. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, you know, they had great. commerce colonies. They had uh, population colonies. This one was a exploitation colony. This sounds like very dystopian, like this sounds like shit. I mean, we're literally doing a, a, a liberation <laughs> campaign in our space D and D campaign where like there's a mining planet and there's yeah. a whatever a prison planet. planet. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's, that's just what this is. They gotta have the saddest like flag, like <laughs> welcome to the exploitation. Just a sad face. Just, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, so what were they doing there in terms of exploitation? It was a lot of natural resources. Mm-hmm. They had rubber plantations, tea plantations, rice, coffee plantations. They had mines for coal mm. and zinc and tin. They also just set up local monopolies uh, on salt, on rice alcohol, on opium. Oof. And what they would do is set up consumption quotas on the Vietnamese villages, meaning that these villages had to buy certain amounts of this stuff from the French monopolies that they had set up to fund the government. Okay. So line up and go buy your opium or the government will throw you in jail. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And they weren't even free. Jeez. Yeah. That's, you know, and that was the point. (laughs) It's basically taxes without saying that you're taxing, but they were also doing taxes. So doubly shitty. That's rough. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, In terms of running the economy, I mean, they were, you know, brutal, exploitative overall, not just the economy, but the colony overall. They were, you know, obviously racist. Mm -hmm. This was obviously deadly to the people they were exploiting. Uh, The French people like that moved there to run the the colony were in control. Mm-hmm. But they heavily, re- there's like not very many of them. They were heavily yeah. relied on Vietnamese officials there with, you know, sometimes with like titles and show oh, you're like the emperor of this region, but really you were a puppet. Yeah. Okay. 
So they had collaborators, basically. Nice stuff, right? Yeah, it sounds fucking great. Sounds pleasant. Well, from day one, (laughs) you can imagine, they faced uh, resistance from people. Yeah. One of the big lessons, I think, in history is, and I hope we can get this across to listeners, is people don't like to be oppressed and will resist however they can. Yeah, it's not inevitable. Yeah, and a lot of times when you're reading history... You're thinking, man, why don't people like do something about this? And our official histories like to kind of say one day somebody had a great idea and then they did a revolution and bam, people got (laughs) like nobody before had thought of that. Like everyone was like, I guess this is fine. Right. Yeah. And they don't like to point out that, you know, oh, hey, people were rebelling the whole time. People were like getting killed because they were trying to do stuff against it. Mm hmm. And, and, you know, that's, I guess, controversial in some way because it's, you know, subversive. It's saying, oh, there's an alternative. Yeah, they don't want people thinking right now, like, hey, why don't we do something? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the Vietnamese situation, the French colonial government there put down a series of rebellions throughout its rule. So first you had the pretty disorganized monarchist movement called the Can Vuong movement in the 1880s. Uh, you had the nationalist Yen Bai mutiny of 1930. Okay. Both of these quickly crushed. Damn. Okay. Uh, the French were just like, that's not good. It's not going to fly. Brutally. Okay. Uh, I mean, they, they like open fire on protesters, killed men, women, Oof. and children. They didn't care. Uh, and that's how they that's how they dealt with stuff like that. God, 1930 is very late to still have like colonies. Oh, yeah. Well, I know. Yeah. We, they're, they're much later ones than that, but still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right, though. That is, you know, surprising to a lot of people is, damn it, you know, that's a different era. We're talking the mm-hmm. modern days. But there's like a wave of decolonization and stuff that happens only after World War II. Yeah, yeah. And this is part of that. So throughout Vietnam, you had resistance movements springing up all over the place with different ideologies, like some of them are more nationalist or monarchist or... Uh, There were even kind of anarchist movements as well. There's different levels of success, but none of them are very successful. So Yeah, yeah. The anarchists are interesting, I think. Uh, This started spreading in the early 1900s. There was a guy named uh, Fan Boy Chow. Okay. Uh, He was one of its early proponents. I'm looking at his picture. Good pick. He looks, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Like suave, maybe? I don't know. I would listen to him. He looks smart. Yeah, he does look intellectual. <laughs> Got the Good pick. Good author photo. That's hard to do. <laughs> and he was not like a full anarchist. He just had like some anarchist ideas floating around. Okay. He was mainly like a nationalist, you know. Uh, okay. But he had spent some time with some cool anarchist kids in Japan and China uh, when he was living in exile there. Hmm. Uh, and anyway, he was kind of one of their leaders. And these early Vietnamese anarchists, they were practical anarchists. So they wanted, they were mainly anti-imperialists. That's what they liked about anarchism. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to use direct action to get shit done. Yeah, that sounds great. They were also in favor of propaganda of the deed. Ooh, that old guy. That's when you, like, do crime, basically. Yeah, do some assassinations. <laughs> It turned out not to be a great strategy for their situation. Oh, man. The French government, when they started getting their officials assassinated or bombed, 
they responded with mass arrests, public oh, executions, and really just decapitated the movement. Uh, quite literally, they were using guillotine. So, oh, in the early 1900s, we still were using guillotines. Uh, yeah. Okay. In the cool. colonies, anyway. I don't know when they stopped doing that. I want to say it's disturbingly late that they guillotined their last person. Oh God. Okay. Uh, it was used to execute Hamida Jandoubi, a Tunisian sentenced to death in France, uh, in 1977. Holy cow. That's way too late, guys. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. That's rough. Okay, the idea of a anarchist nationalist is very weird to me. It's not that they were like pure anarchists, they just like like some of their, their tracks. I think that that's partially it, um... You can picture it, though, as like nationalism in the sense of we want the right to determine for ourselves Mm, what our course as a nation, a group of people is. Yeah, I think it's just like their their scope of what a nation is maybe was slightly different. Right. And to them, nationalism and anti-imperialism are like bound up together. That's Mm, the main thing. And then beyond that, it's not let's build a big state. It's just we got we get to decide for ourselves. Okay, cool. Cool. I can get behind that. And that's a good way to think about the other guys that we want to focus on here at Teach Me Communism, the communists. Oh, yeah. They're very much going to be at that same vein as like, yeah, we're communists. We think that's good, but we are mainly fighting for our independence. And we think communism's a good way to do that. I mean, put out the fucking fire that is imperialism first. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to do a quick biographical detour. Okay. Which could be very in-depth and everything, but we're not going to do very in-depth. Okay. Uh, of a guy named Ho Chi Minh. I've heard this name. Ho Chi Minh uh, is, he's like the key figure for the Vietnamese struggle for independence. Okay. Uh, his life is super interesting. Like we said, worthy of its own episode. Brief intro here, and we'll kind of bring him back in. He's a character throughout all this. Okay, cool. First off, he's confusing to follow in histories because he used anywhere from 50 to 200 pseudonyms over the course of his life. Holy cow, okay. And so even reading an official biography, they use different names for him like at different points <laughs> in his life because that's what he was using. I'm going to use Ho Chi Minh throughout. Okay, yeah, thanks. For simplicity's sake. Yeah. Even though he was going by different names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was born in 1890 to a family that was decently well off. His father was like a local official mm-hmm. uh, that like lost his position at some point because they said he abused his power mm, okay he like caned this dude to death or something jesus then like the french were like oh you can come work for us and he's like no fuck you i don't like the french <laughs> and ho chi Minh was like "Ooh, cool yeah i love a class trader he uh so he got some some of a french education before getting out of that and leaving to uh travel the world Ooh, okay <laughs> he, he he just does like a tour or something but it's not like a like a high class tour yeah, he's doing like the dishwasher tour. <laughs> yeah, he's he's it's very much like Shay's like a uh, motorcycle tour. Yeah, but even less bourgeois than that. Uh, oh, okay. He was going to France, the U.S., Britain. It's kind of unclear where all he actually went, uh, but he claims to have worked as a baker at the Parker House Hotel in Boston, a servant for a wealthy Brooklyn family, uh, as a line manager for General <laughs> Motors. Uh, and as a dishwasher, chef, and pastry chef throughout London. He got around. So he was just working odd jobs, basically. <laughs> yeah, just everywhere. 
eventually he gets back to France. He gets involved with the French Socialist Party there. Cool. And a group called the Group of Vietnamese Patriots, this group of pro-independence, you know, expats from Vietnam. Okay. And it's with this group that he ends up going to uh, the Versailles Peace Talks at the end of World War One. How did he get in? Just just because he was with this group, I guess. He was with this group that was part of the French Socialist Party, which was pretty prevalent in France mm. at the time. Okay. He goes with a delegation representing this group to try and convince various members of the Allied powers to get France to grant Vietnam its independence. Okay. He's saying... President Wilson, he's like the savior of Europe at this time because, Mm -hmm. oh, America came in and saved everybody (laughs) from the German menace, you know. So Wilson was like savior of Europe, and he was all about, let's do self-determination for all these different Mm. uh, countries out there. They should get to decide what they're doing. Okay. And so, (laughs) what she men rolls up and is like, yo, self-determination, I like that. Let's do it. Uh, but they're all like, who are you? Like, no. They ignore him. Everybody the does. They're just like, get out of here. Like, neat speech, bro. And so Ho Chi Minh starts thinking, these socialists, they're pretty moderate. They didn't back me up, really. They just sent me out there to look like a fool. Mm. Uh, so he starts thinking that maybe those new guys, those Bolsheviks over in there in Russia, mm. maybe they've got a point, you know? Maybe, like, we got to do more than this. And so he ends up in the... Marxist-Leninist camp. Oh, okay. And in 1920, he and the majority of the members of the French Socialist Party end up leaving because their leadership is way more conservative mm-hmm. and refuses to join the Communist International. Nice. Uh, the Common Turn. Okay. And so this this group leaves and they say we're starting our own party, the French Communist Party, and we're going to join the Common Turn. All right. I mean, usually splits are bad, but I'm into this one. Yeah. So interesting story there is ho chi minh was a founding member of the french communist party yeah cool after that he ends up moving to moscow to get some good commie training nice gotta go to commie school get your get your badge get your vest you know all (laughs) that stuff still waiting on mine what would you major in in commie school um probably propaganda you know like visually yeah (laughs) i'd just be in the propaganda factory You'd probably do the graphic design. Mm-hmm. End up teaching at the graphic de- at the propaganda academy. Absolutely. I mean, they <laughs> had posters that were basically like comics, so like I think I could do it. Yeah, the one with the guy <laughs> eating corn. Yeah, corn guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would do rhetoric or something. That would be my major, and then mm-hmm. I would, uh, you know, probably end up teaching. <laughs> probably. <laughs> you can't help yourself. Yep. <laughs> teaching in my free time. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Then Ho Chi Minh moved to Guangzhou in China okay. in 1924. And then in 1925, he starts working with a group there, this patriotic group of Vietnamese expats again. Mm, okay. This time called the Tam Tam Sha, which means the Society of Like Hearts. That's cute. I love that. Yeah, I bet they have a cute like jacket. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah. Or I would like an enamel pin. That Ooh, would be- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and eventually, he ends up converting them. They were just broadly like, we want independence, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, converts them to revolutionary socialism. Love it. You got to start out with a secret club, right, basically? <laughs> Absolutely, you do. <laughs> he then, with them, sets up 
the Tam Thien or the Vietnamese Revolutionary Youth League. Mm, okay. The true first Marxist organization in Vietnam, but it was based in China. But that was just for now. <laughs> okay. Satellite office. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the organization had two goals. National independence for Vietnam. Great. And redistribution of land to the peasants. Mm, that's my favorite song. Land reform. <laughs> On repeat. They planned out three phases for an armed struggle to liberate Vietnam and carry out that goal. So three phases. Number one, first phase, use their secret base in China to recruit and train secret revolutionary cells or cadres and send them back to Vietnam. All right. First one, bump up that secret club. Love it. Classic move. Yeah. Next, those cadres are going to start political and economic activities like strikes, boycotts, and protests to mobilize the masses. Also a good move. Next, once you're ready for it, insurrection. Rise up, overthrow, boom, French out, uh, start a new revolutionary government. Sorry, just makes it sound so simple. Like, one, two, three, we're there. We did it, guys. Three-step program. <laughs> I mean, you can do a, a uh, infomercial. Yeah, a little chart. <laughs> <laughs> so that was their goal. And Ho Chi Minh and the League got to work, organizing courses on revolutionary theory and practice, uh, publishing pamphlets, classic. Nice. Periodicals, training manuals, expanding their operations and their membership. Uh, and then a guy named Chiang Kai-shek came and reigned on their parade. He was the leader of the nationalists in the Chinese Civil War. And remember when we covered that, they were teamed up with the communists for a while. Oh, yeah. But then they betrayed them. This was in mm. April 1927 and starts purging the communists. And so oh, no. these, and so the, the league, they're like, fuck shit. You know, we got to get <laughs> out. We're communists. We got to go. <laughs> yes. Oh no. So they go on the run. Uh, they move their headquarters fast. Uh, then there's a period of very, very boring infighting and splits and stuff. Classic, classic, classic. And rival. It's, it's dumb. Our trajectory is our Patreon is our secret club. We got to start printing some pamphlets, I guess. <laughs> and then eventually, like, our Patreon gets shut down. And then you and I have to split up for a while and do dueling podcasts. Yeah, yeah. We have to, don't, <laughs> that would suck. Don't listen to the splitter, Christine. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's great. He's not radical enough. <laughs> yeah, they're doctrinaire. Uh, we could, yeah, we'd have to we'd have to work on our insults. We'd probably have to meet to have a planning sesh to... <laughs> Then I'll call you this, and then yeah. this. No, I'm too lazy to run this podcast for myself. Lord knows. Can't do it. Well, so am I. So there we go. We're <laughs> codependent. We are. It's very healthy. Okay. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, after that. The drama. Fighting, the different communist groups that split from the league end up merged into the Communist Party of Vietnam. Okay. The Comintern came in, and they were like, really the communist party of vietnam that's like pretty nationalist you guys have all these different groups together like that you just kind of fuse together without making them believe the right thing uh why don't you okay work on the name thing first though like <laughs> okay they had to make some revisions right so they're like this is fine i guess we're the indo-chinese communist party now now we have laos and cambodia also mm, okay here that's kind of cool i guess yeah, they were like, that's fine. We're we're doing the same thing, though. Like, yeah, yeah. Just they didn't, like, purge people or do anything like that yet. I mean, they're going to. Like, everyone does. <laughs> uh, they uh, have a pretty cool 10-point program, though. Okay. Here we go. 10 steps. 10, well, not steps. 10 things we want to do, right? Great. Overthrow French imperialism. 
Vietnamese feudalism and the reactionary bourgeoisie. Get that shit out of here. That sounds great. Love that first step. Good step. Also, we're going to we're going to make Indochina completely independent. Great. Establish a government of workers, peasants, and soldiers. Cool. Soldiers part just being, yeah. I think, in the Leninist idea of like Regular the armed people. people. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. But I mean, they were very militaristic in that they were fighting. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, they had to get France out. France wasn't just me like, yeah, sure, bye. Yeah, it's different to be pro-troop when you're like doing a communist revolution versus being pro-troop <laughs> like. In empire, yeah. (laughs) Next, nationalize the banks and other imperialist enterprises. Great, sounds good. Land reform. My fave. Confiscate and redistribute all the plantations and any imperialist or bourgeoisie property. Cool, cool. An eight-hour workday. Could be less, but that's okay. Yeah, true. But, I mean, you know, they're probably coming from way longer than even a 12-hour workday. I'm sure. Uh, abolish the poll tax and taxes that target the poor. Great. Democracy to the masses. Cool. Education for all. That's a good one. Gender equality. Hell yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Uh, you know, gender equality is what we would call it, I guess. They said equality of men and women. So mm-hmm. that's back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was their 10 point program for the Indo Chinese Communist Party. I mean, two thumbs up. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Gotta have goals. so the communists were out there they're training revolutionaries they're recruiting they're doing work in the streets and the villages in the countryside to mobilize the masses and to stir up discontent and to build their numbers preparing for the revolution and everyone was like that's a great idea you totally convinced me let's do it and then they did it so like you're not too far off not everyone (laughs) did it but they do succeed in fomenting some rebellion Okay. That kind of gets out ahead of them a little bit. This is called the Uprising of the Ngeten Soviets. Okay. Uh, this is in 1930. Lasts, it doesn't get put down to like 1932. So, spoiler, it does get put down. Oh. Well. Uh, but it's a series of revolts and strikes and demonstrations against the French and the Vietnamese puppet administration there. Okay. Sound, I mean, good start. Yeah. Well, you know. Conditions were shitty, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were undergoing ex- exploitation, of course, but there was also like a famine. Uh, and you now you have these professional revolutionary communists running around, egging people on <laughs> and taking that natural anger that people are feeling and channeling into it and say, hey, why don't we like, you know, rise up against these assholes, you know? And yeah, for sure. What they're meaning is, why don't you come join us and we'll teach you how to like gradually, eventually we'll get to rise up organized mm-hmm. against these assholes but people are taking that immediately and being like yes why don't you know we what yeah <laughs> grab stuff and go and <laughs> it gets intense fast in early 1930 there were five strikes in two months oh wow the peasants start protesting demanding a tax moratorium and end to forced labor conscription called the corvée system where they would just come get you and be like you're working here now yeah fuck that a return of their stolen communal lands that the landlords had come in and been like nope this is mine not yours okay, anymore yeah. uh and communists organized these demonstrations for may day mm-hmm. only to have the french cops come in oh no and start firing into the crowd uh they killed Fuck. 27 men women and children oof so cadre started attacking county officials offices and they're like alcohol depots because of that like monopoly, mm. you know, that's one of their mm-hmm. things. 
Uh, by September, there were even more strikes, and this time the colonial administration called in airplanes to bomb oh, them. Fuck. Okay. They killed between 140 and 200 people, wounding hundreds more. And in the central provinces after which the Ye Tin uprising was named, Nye An and Atin, mm-hmm. uh, the French basically were just trying to brutally repress any uprisings that were happening as they as they popped up. Fuck. Uh, But the uprising was continuing anyway. Peasants and workers destroyed administrative buildings, railway stations, tax offices, police stations. They beat up and executed officials and landlords who resisted and just kind of like gave a pass to people who were going along with it, even if they were landlords or uh, officials, as long as they were like, hey, dude, do what you want. It's just my job, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, that sounds good. Normal local government basically broke down and peasants spontaneously formed associations or what the Communist Party came in and called Soviets, mm-hmm. electing committees to start taking power for themselves, basically. They were wow. uh, doing some of the program. They were like confiscating some of those communal lands that had been taken and redistributing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were lowering rents and redistributing food. Uh, they were digging wells and setting up schools and starting to train self-defense militias. They're doing the dang thing. Yeah. And this is at the local level. So the the, the ICP, the Indochinese Communist Party, they were kind of like trying to keep up with this. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, fuck, what's going on? Yeah. This was further than they thought it was going to go. And the French were like gearing up to, you know, start kicking some asses, mm-hmm. which they did. They They killed hundreds and, and imprisoned tens of thousands of people in concentration camps oh, fuck. Uh, in their efforts to, which were ultimately successful, the efforts to pacify uh, mm-hmm. these uprisings. Uh, by early 1932, most of the cadres of the ICP had been killed or arrested, and the Shit. uprising was was crushed. The, the party was basically wiped out temporarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French ended up, by the end of it, killing over 2,300 people. Holy cow. Okay. So, yeah, that was a brutal one. A kind yeah. of premature attempt that got out of hand and then, you know, the party paid the price, I guess, for its failure. The Nguyen uh, uprising. Yeah. Well, I think it's impressive even that they got that far. Like, the fact that they were already setting up their shit, like... Most people don't even make it to that point. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if they would have been successful at that. Like, this probably would have been kind of a directionless, you know, a bloodletting. I mean, let's go kill the people we don't like and sort sort of take power for ourselves. You know, kind of a peasant uprising that you have, that, mm-hmm. that, that we see in history sometimes that just fans out, you know, versus this more kind of organizing without that organization that the party had put in. Yeah, and I imagine if they had had more of that, like on a national level, they could have coordinated better to to stave off the French. Yeah, yeah, or had a better chance of it. Yeah, yeah. So that's one kind of early example of resistance. And resistance continued in a less openly volatile fashion for the rest of the decades. And we're talking the 1930s there. The Indochinese Communist Party had to kind of rebuild from the ashes. Mm Mm-hmm. And eventually came World War II. Okay. In 1940, Japan invaded and occupied French Indochina. They ended up just 
or leaving in power the Vichy France regime, which was the Nazi collaborationist regime. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. so like when Germany invaded France, they left Vichy France mm, as okay. like the puppet government of Nazi Germany. It was their Ooh, collaboration I government. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, they just take the flag and they put like a the the fascist axe on it. You know. Okay, cool. They just had stickers and they were just putting it up all over the flags. <laughs> yeah. Eh, good enough. We'll change them later. So Japan was like in charge of the Vichy France regime, which itself was a puppet of the Nazi Germany regime, which, which was administering the local governments there as their own puppet. So it was just this like. Yeah, just a series <laughs> of puppet strings yeah. waiting to be tangled. Obviously, the communists hated this. They. Yeah. Uh, wanted to do something about it but they were still at the stage where we're like we like we're rebuilding sorry Mm -hmm. they had just seen what premature action would do their the leadership at least was like we can't just fire off you know yeah yeah but some of their members in southern indochina the region called cochin china Mm -hmm. disagreed and they wanted to strike right then uh, so they did. They start this uprising on November 22nd, 1940. They take over some cities and the insurrection kind of spreads in, in the neighboring area. And the French respond predictably, brutally. Mm, okay. They start bombing. They start leveling villages. They start sending in troops. And within a month, they had quelled the insurrection and they had killed and executed uh, and captured and then executed a lot of uh, the communist insurgents that had taken part in that. The uh, communist party was like, what the fuck? Like, obviously some people were double agents because this went so bad. They started purging their own ranks. Oh man. And yeah, kind of brutal toward themselves a little less, wait, way less brutal (laughs) toward their captured enemies who people, anyone that they had captured in this, they were kind of thinking, well, you know, there's going to be a round two and we don't want these guys to like hate us for this. So they put them on these trials, these people's courts trials where mm. they kind of scare them and they're like, you did this and you're bad and bad, but we're going to be merciful to you. You're free, but don't do anything bad to us in the future. When the revolution comes, you better remember this. Oh, and they like kind of were hoping to get some goodwill in the future. Weird. From like setting these dudes free. Because a lot of them were like Vietnamese officials, you know, so they were already playing kind of a, you know, hearts and minds kind of game. Like, we got to convince them that we're the good guys, you know? Mm hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah, that's a a weird move. I wonder how that works out. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's the rare like paladin at the table actually following their alignment. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And having mercy on their helpless opponents. They also kind of as some of their final moves before running the hell away is uh, they distributed the rice from the granaries that they had captured Mm -hmm. uh, to people because like there was a famine going on. Yeah. Yeah. They and then they were like, okay, go into hiding. Uh, Listen for when we (laughs) for when we call you back, you know, go (laughs) hide your guns. Uh, Yeah. We'll meet again. Oh my gosh. That's nuts. Okay. So it was a tough failure. Yeah. Kind of, you know, I mean, leadership was kind of like, yes, we know. We told you. Why Why did you do this? <laughs> we told you to like not, but okay. Yeah. I mean, I get it. You're fighting Nazis. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to not do that. Yeah, true, true. 
and it's uh, it's also hard to predict the right moments you know uh yeah yeah lots of the bolshevik leaders thought that the february revolution wasn't it wasn't the right time the october revolution wasn't the right time (laughs) and then they just kind of have to go like well fuck it's happening let's do it you know yeah that's the thing you never know it's the right or wrong time until afterwards yeah there's just no way to tell Mm -hmm. so everybody thinks they're right Mm -hmm. and it's here in 1941 that we see the return of ho chi minh all right, what was he doing in the meantime? Just chilling? That's the question, right? He was um, he was all over the place again. Oh, okay, uh, just traveling, man. Yeah, when the League moved its headquarters in 1927, he took off on this road trip. Moscow, Paris, Brussels, Berlin, Switzerland, Italy, Thailand, India, then back to Shanghai <laughs> in 1929. So Jeez, okay. He hit the road. Jeez, and this is like in the 30s when travel is obviously not easy. Yeah, yeah, and... It's in 1930, he ends up back in the scene. Uh, he's the one to chair the meeting that unified those communist parties. He's mm. very, like, persuasive in this sense. You see throughout his mm-hmm. biography that he has these instances where he's either in a hopeless situation or he's talking to somebody who completely opposes him uh, or talking to these different disagreeing groups where he's able to convince them to find a common ground. Like, he's kind of, he's cool in that way. Okay, cool. Uh, another example of that he gets arrested in hong kong but he manages to convince the british officials there to fake his records to report him as dead so that they don't extradite him back to french indochina what the fuck how do you do that no idea why they would be like oh yeah you're right man yeah no problem but they do and and then he is disguised as a chinese scholar and they deport him to shanghai Okay. So that's like, again, how does he get out of that situation? Just being a nice guy. I don't know. Like how convincing he is. Max charisma stat. Okay. (laughs) So he goes, he ends up from there going back to Moscow to study and to teach at the Lenin Institute for a while. Ooh. Before returning to China to advise the communist forces in the civil war there. Mm, Okay. And then finally in 1941, he heads back to Vietnam. All over the place. So that's got to be part of our thing, too. For a while, we just are on the road. Yes. Yeah. We have to do, a, <laughs> we can do a road series podcast, you know, from yeah, various yeah. places. <laughs> I don't want to what, ride a motorcycle. So um, we got to figure out something. Well, we get like that. an RV or something. I can drive one that of those. That sounds comfier. I think. Yeah. Is that before or after we split? <laughs> after we split and make up. This is after we make up. Yeah. Mm, okay. Okay. Gotcha. So, he arrives back in Vietnam in 1941, and on May 19th, he and the 8th Congress of the Indochinese Communist Party, Mm -hmm. uh, they meet and they form the League for the Independence of Vietnam, better known as the Viet Minh. Okay. The Viet Minh is this military and political organization. It was the only organized like anti-French, anti-Japanese resistance group in Vietnam. And it was really broad-based. It wasn't overtly communist in any way in terms of social revolution. It didn't talk about that. It was just like, we are fighting for national independence. If you are to come join us. I mean, yeah, again, you got a really big problem. I think I would get those guys out first. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And they're able to get 
you know, popular support from different groups and societies, from these different factions. And there's lots of, you know, there's these different nationalist groups or social democratic groups that are out there like, we're not on board with the communist stuff, but we'll work with you because these guys are assholes, you know, and you're not okay. making, you're not saying we have to be communist to be with you. The communist party is still like the leadership of this, but mm, okay. it's, it's like way looser organized. They're willing to put it aside. Yes. Yeah. So that's the Viet Minh. They were doing everything they could to fight back against the invaders. Uh, they were led by this guy named Vo Nguyen Zap. Okay. He was this brilliant military commander, later by his enemies, termed the Red Napoleon. <laughs> that's a pretty cool name. It is kind of cool. That sounds like a cocktail. Oh, damn. Yeah, I'll have a Red Napoleon, please. Yeah. That's good. We'll have to design that at some point. In our secret headquarters, we have a speakeasy <laughs> bar with communist-themed drinks. There we go. <laughs> we add grenadine to everything, so it's all red. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so Zap was a history teacher. Oh, uh, shit. With no direct military training. He just <laughs> oh, read a lot of military theory and said, I could do that. That's hilarious. What a power move. And so, yeah, he ends up being in charge of the Viet Minh. Uh, they set up bases of operations, kind of safe areas where they have local support that they mm -hmm. have built up by getting people what they needed. Uh, mm -hmm. Setting up kind of a competing popular form of government, a kind of form of dual power where they are okay. really the ones providing services there. In the okay, like area. the Black Panthers did. Yes, yeah. All over the place, this is, of course, way more rural. Uh, they're forming local militias. They're providing education with a little side of propaganda, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little sprinkle. Attacking abusive landlords and moneylenders for funds and redistributing it to the people. Kind of collecting taxes in a way, but through, like, food donations and, and intelligence on the enemy. That's how you can pay Ooh. them to or, or just working like hey we need people to haul this ammunition secretly at night through this place like that's mm, okay, another way yeah. that you can kind of do your part for yeah the effectively the local government forces there which is the Viet Minh. okay interesting and so people are like this is way better way better of a deal than those asshole french who exploit us all these things and then still force us to buy their shit Mm-hmm. I'm, like, getting something out of this. Yes, yeah, I'm getting something out of this. It's better for me anyway. And, yeah, so people were, they're really growing their popularity in that way. That wasn't all pleasant. <laughs> uh, sometimes people prefer to work with the French or the Japanese, and the Viet Minh did use violence against these people. I mean, yeah, again, there's violence against, like, Nazis and, like, Japan and World War Two. I think you can do that. Well, I think that one's okay. The people, you know, yeah, there are the Japanese troops and there are the French colonial forces, but there's also the civilians who were, were willingly working with them. I mean, that sucks too. It does suck too, but uh, I guess the, these are the people who, when you're reading the histories, they say, oh yeah, but the Vietnam also did terror to people. That's who mm. they're talking about. That's the instance of it. I just wanted to put that out there because we do want to uh -huh. cover the facts, but that's the context of it. No facts here. <laughs> just bias. Just bias. Another aspect of the Japanese occupation of Vietnam was a terrible famine that struck the country from October 1944 to late 1945. Part of it is due to typhoons. Okay. And it's also 
partly because of the ongoing war and because of yeah. uh, the Japanese and the French policies there. So if you're going to like lay the Ukrainian famine on communism, which, I mean, we've talked about it before, you, you know, <laughs> eh, mixed bag. there are policies that didn't improve things for sure, but it was also like a natural thing as well. Mm-hmm. Same story here is that the typhoons like did, you know, the natural occurrences did ma- did initiate things. Uh, mm-hmm. But the war was also going Their on. The response was bad. Yeah. For one, uh, the Americans had been bombing stuff in the course of the war, which had cut off coal supplies, uh, which made the French and the Japanese occupiers in Vietnam start burning rice and maize for fuel. That's bad. Yeah. You need that to eat. The French and the Japanese also forced Vietnamese farmers to grow jute instead of rice. And people can't eat jute. That's just like a fiber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they also exported staple crops to Japan to feed them instead. Uh, and they also seized food from farmers to feed their troops. Fuck, that sucks. So people were starving and the Viet Minh were like, this fucking sucks. They agreed with you <laughs> and did what they could to help. They raided the granaries of rich Vietnamese landlords who were collaborating with the Japanese. Nice. Uh, and, you know, they were giving that out to people. Uh, and yeah, this made them way more popular I mean, they were, think about it, you know, you got these assholes causing tons of people to die. Uh, Our estimates vary from anywhere from 700,000 on the low end to 2 million people dying as a result of this famine. So you have this group that's actually doing something about it. Yeah. Like we've said before, you know, when you're getting helped in that way, you don't give a damn what their (laughs) political persuasion is or what yours was. You're for them now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so that was that famine. Again, yes, partially naturally caused, but exacerbated. You know, these guys didn't give a shit about Vietnamese lives. It was the Viet Minh who were trying to to help people. Yeah, yeah. Next we have is still during the course of the Japanese occupation. In December 1944, the Vietnamese resistance created the Vietnam Propaganda Liberation Army. Cool name. With Zap as its commander. Okay. And this would eventually evolve and change names and stuff into the People's Army of Vietnam, which is what it's known as today. So their national army. Yeah. Uh, What that started out as was 31 men, three (laughs) women, two revolvers, 17 rifles, 14 like flintlock breech loading rifles. Oh, no. And one light machine gun. Okay, so not a lot, just kind of some guys just just causing some trouble. <laughs> yeah, this would be like if I invited everyone that I knew <laughs> and also was like, if you can, bring a gun. <laughs> That's about how much you would get. I still probably wouldn't actually reach that total, but yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. We're in Texas. <laughs> True. That's how they started out, 1944. Jeez. In 10 years, they're going to win their independence. That's insane. Yeah. Dude. I hope those like 31 men and three women are like, they got some cool statues or something. Because that's cool. Yeah. I'm sure some of them did. That's where they start out. And despite that, Zap is able to lead his army uh, to a string of victories. And by April 1945, the Viet Minh had swollen to 5,000 members. Holy shit. And we're just kind of attacking the Japanese all over. 
real hit and run stuff. You know, they're not like out there in big battles or stuff. They're doing like guerrilla tactics and things. The Viet Minh also got some help from an interesting group. Okay. The United States. I did not see this one coming. Well, if you, you remember, the United States, enemy of my enemy, they did not like Japan mm. either at that time. That's true. That's true. So the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, got their hands in here. So the, the CIA was fucking around in Vietnam <laughs> before they even existed. <laughs> of course. Uh, they had an agent named Archimedes Patty. That's an insane name. Archimedes, okay. yes. Uh, and he was in there. He met with Ho Chi Minh, and he was like, these guys are dope. Let's help them. Uh, so he was supplying and training Viet Minh forces, like teaching them how to use flamethrowers and grenade launchers <laughs> and machine guns. <laughs> wow. Do you think that guy got like super fired like 30 years later? <laughs> <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but... They did interviews with him in like the 80s. And he was like, nobody fucking asked me anything about the Vietnamese. I did reports and I was like, yeah, they, you know, Ho Chi Minh, he seems like a nationalist. Like, it's not that big, you know, he's not, I don't, I don't think we should really go against these guys and all that. Mm-hmm. Nobody fucking listened to him at all or even asked him. He sent these reports up and whatever. And apparently like they just didn't get read. They didn't open them at all. <laughs> my god just regular ass office ineptitude the guy who had like the american who had met with ho chi minh yeah yeah the guy who, who would know him? the most about the situation yeah that's insane yeah so anyway despite these resistance efforts the japanese stay in power they end up getting rid of the french colonial government in 1945 and setting up this puppet emperor named bayo dai okay uh who declares vietnam like independent from france but i mean he's still like a puppet of the (laughs) japanese yeah yeah Uh, and that continues till japan surrenders on august 15th at 1945 yeah so despite the you know attempts and the efforts to try to do something to get these guys out they don't actually succeed but i do Mm -hmm. think they establish for themselves a real base of popular support yeah, exactly. They did a lot to alleviate the issues in the meantime. Uh, that's a good lesson to take from this. Like, we're not in the guerrilla warfare sense, but still, <laughs> people talk about, like, oh, there's no use in agitating or organizing or doing these things, either because we're in the belly of the beast and empire's never going to do revolution, or because it's, you know, the conditions just aren't ripe yet and, and it's so far down the road, like... Yes, but you've got to be seen, you've got to be doing and seen doing something to mm-hmm. get, like, people to be on board with with your program. Like, if communists are just the assholes who complain but never do anything. <laughs> then that's all you are. Yeah. Who's going to want to join up with that? Yeah. Yeah. If they're always the ones saying, yeah, it doesn't matter, nothing matters, then, like, okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Yeah, but if they're the ones out there, like, you know, distributing food and, like, actually doing good things, like, that's that's brand recognition. Yes, yeah, to put, yeah, to put it in modern terms. <laughs> uh, for you marketing majors. <laughs> oh, no. All right, so Japan surrendered. And the Viet Minh say, this is our chance. They launch yes. what's called the August Revolution. Okay. Because it happened in August. None of that 
Gregorian Julian calendar shit. It really did happen in August. <laughs> we get to say August and mean August. <laughs> yeah. People's revolutionary committees across Vietnam took over in the countryside, in the cities. And on August 19th, the Viet Minh take control of Hanoi in the north of the country. And the Japanese forces that are still there, they've already surrendered. And they're like, not my job. You guys can, they just stand by and let <laughs> <Sure>. it happen. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we're not really here anymore. We're, we're on break. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is not my problem. Yeah. And so they take power more or less, right? Uh, Ho Chi Minh at this point has a meeting with Bao Dai, the puppet emperor, and convinces mm. him to resign. Another persuasion. Jeez, check. this guy. It's like, yeah, aren't you tired of this? Take a break. <laughs> I got it. I got it from here. Uh, well, he offers him like a, a post as like a senior advisor, you know. Like <laughs> That's hilarious. I'll listen to you. Never going to yeah. listen to him. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, I forgot to tell you about that meeting. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, your invite got lost. Weird. <laughs> uh, and so Bao Dai says, yeah, sure. I resign on September 2nd and the same day. Ho Chi Minh goes out and issues the Proclamation of Independence of the De- Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Okay. And he is its first president. Okay. And this proclamation's interesting. Its words mirror the Declaration of Independence, like, from the United States. Oh, weird. And he actually, like, you know, showed a draft of this to, this Archime- to that Archimedes guy that we mentioned oh, before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they had lunch, like, before. <laughs> what do you think? Patty said that he offered some corrections because he was like, I think he was, I think that was basically the declaration of independence. So I offered a few, like, cause I remember what it was. So, you know, yeah, I, this is well. supposed to be more like, you know, translation issues, I guess. Oh, okay. okay. Some, some edits and yeah, I mean, he, Ho Chi Minh goes out there and, you know, quotes from it in his declaration saying all people are created equal. They're endowed yeah. by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Interesting. I wonder how that was like received by the United States. Were we let into? I mean, we probably weren't into it, but I don't know. That's explicit what he's going for. He does that, and he sends telegrams to Truman saying, "Like, we we want to be your friend, man. Like, we want to be Check independent." Check out my fanfic. Yeah, we think you guys Declaration are cool. of Independence. <laughs> you know, you're for self determination. You were once a colony that broke free from your imperial master. Mm, mm, okay. Support us. And despite his, despite that declaration and his repeated telegrams to Truman, those I think go unopened or unread or at least unresponded to. <laughs> what is happening over there in our offices? We just maybe there's a bad mail truck delivery guy. Like there's something going on. Yeah, there. I don't the know. The mail room is just a party twenty four seven. Well, they're all yeah. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> he gets no recognition at all from the Truman administration from American government at all. Jeez. Okay. That sucks. You, I mean, that's a big move. Yes. Like you wrote your whole fucking declaration of independence to emulate it. And you're, they're not even going to like acknowledge it. That's fucking rude. It is. I'd be so mad. I'm like, I could have written my own fire shit. Yeah. And I wrote this like boring one <laughs> that everyone knows. Yeah. I, I did a cover to, you know, a tribute band <laughs> didn't to even you. appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's kind of interesting, though, okay, because before President Truman, you have FDR. Mm-hmm. And Roosevelt had been in favor of independence for French Indochina. 
he had, he basically kind of said like the French just rolled over and they gave that to Japan and Japan used that against us. And yeah. plus like, do we really want to be in the business of propping up all these empires all over the world? Like that kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind that's kind of over. Yeah. So we're not, you know, I don't want to do that after the war, but he died. Had he lived longer, things might've gone differently. Truman was way more anti-communist he was way more Mm -hmm. like distrustful of the soviets this is the start of the cold war really is when he takes charge and is like listening to all his advisors who were like yeah don't trust stalin blah 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 whereas fdr is more like i don't know i met stalin he seems like a good guy (laughs) we hung out we took that one pick yeah i don't know it's interesting like what could have happened maybe if the u.s is like yes let's support these guys you know yeah that's interesting they don't. They don't support them. But they don't. I mean, I'm not surprised, but but we're so, like, surface level stupid sometimes. Like, I feel like that could have worked. Like, if it had, like, gotten in the press or something. Like, I, there's, like, a lot of patriotism kind of bullshit that I think would be into it. If they just publish that and people are like, whoa, look at here. This is... Yeah, the American way is spreading. We did it, guys. Yeah, this is, looks <laughs> like the United States of Vietnam over there. Yeah. Because, <laughs> again, America see everything through our own experience. Yeah, I guess everyone does that. Shit. It just seems more crass when we do it. It does, Because yeah. we're it's from here, I guess. our experience is a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Ho Chi Minh's new government, or the Viet Minh's new government overall, it's not just mm-hmm. him running the show. It is not in actual charge for long. Because uh, at one of the last conferences of uh, World War II, which historians kind of follow this, you know, there's the like the Yalta Conference mm-hmm. and the Potsdam Conference is this one. Okay. Tony Soprano has that good Potsdam of I know line about it at some point. <laughs> I don't remember that one. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's in July 1945 that the Soviets, the Americans, and the British they agree. That after the war, they're going to split Indochina at the 16th parallel. Okay. Uh, in terms of who's going to occupy it once Japan surrenders. Okay. What they agreed was that Chiang Kai-shek of nationalist China was going to occupy the northern half. And the French and the British, they were going to occupy the southern half. And then eventually, they would figure it out and get it all going back to France. But that was just temporary. It was just like, let's get the the Japanese out of there. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, once we've done that, we'll hand it all back over to, to France. So like nobody asked the people that were currently in charge there, hey, what's going on? No, no. <laughs> Did they know that that was happening? They just well, didn't care? this meeting would have been uh, before uh, Japan had surrendered. So it's before the August Ooh, Revolution, okay, before the okay. Viet Minh. But even so, nobody was asking like, the Vietnamese what people do they do? or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Jesus. That was okay. not what they were about. So, so when Japan surrenders, eventually nationalist China troops come in to the Northern half, uh, to accept the surrender and they just leave the Viet Minh government in charge. They're like, that's fine. Uh, okay. and in the Southern half of that, mm-hmm. uh, the, French and the British occupy it and the British kind of stand by and they're like, go to town France. And the French troops really quickly overthrow the democratic Republic of Vietnam no. government there in Saigon, which was a lot weaker, a lot worse organized than they were okay. in the Northern in the North. part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so they declare that 
France is back in charge in that Fuck. region. Fuck. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh, I'd be so fucking pissed. You, you just got rid of the, the one assholes yeah. and then here are these guys. And then asshole number one is back. Yep. Great. The old guy. Uh, eventually in northern Vietnam, Chiang Kai-shek makes the French and the DRV uh, sign a deal. So the okay. Viet Minh government. It gives the French give back some land to China and they agree that Vietnam's going to be like an auto- autonomous state mm-hmm. within the French Union overall. So they're going to be like in okay. the Indo-Chinese Union, but they're going to be autonomous, but part of France. It sounds okay. kind of good or better. Yeah. But it's very up. vague. Yeah. Okay. The French would eventually remove their troops, but it, they've got like a five-year window. And that was the agreement they came to. Then the Chinese forces were like, cool, thanks for the agreement. We're out. French troops go and reoccupy all of Indochina by March 1946. Okay, fuck. So basically just France is back. France is back. They promised to be nicer They promised, yeah. And that's the thing is... <laughs> Listen, guys, I know we did a lot of bad things, a lot of imperialism, a lot of executions and guillotines. But we've changed. I'm different now. <laughs> I, I fought a war. I, I know a lot more about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is Ho Chi Minh faced a lot of cri- criticism. Yeah, I'd be pissed. In the communist press, from other nationalist groups. And they're like, dude, you gave away too much. And sure enough, he kind of said, like, I had to, you know, it was the only option. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, but sure enough, the agreement just quickly gets abused by the French. Pretty soon afterward, they're like, uh, yeah, that doesn't even apply in southern <laughs> Vietnam and Cochin, China. That's like its own separate republic now that we run directly. No autonomy there. That's us. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Uh, so they're, like, already going back on the agreement. Shocker. And Ho Chi Minh's, like trying to save this whole thing and and he starts trying to negotiate with the french you know he's like surely i can roll well enough on a persuasion <laughs> i can get these guys on board uh he, he's just like come on independence that's what we want come on guys <laughs> but they're like fuck you why should we why we're strong now we're, we're back in charge and yeah why would they they don't budge i mean they're imperialists right <laughs> that's yeah what, yeah that's imperialists gonna imperialists this uh, keeps going on until November 20th, 1946, when shit hits the fan. All right, so just to recap, okay. French colony, Japanese come in, mm-hmm. they surrender. Mm-hmm. Vietnam's like, we're free. Yeah, very. yeah, we did it. And then the French are immediately back. Fuck. All right. Yeah. And that's where Ho Chi Minh's trying to negotiate them out and, and, and say, hey, be nice, please. Uh, mm-hmm. And enter scene left. A French patrol ship coming into Haiphong in northern Vietnam. Okay. This ship goes in to arrest a Chinese ship that was bringing in some contraband. And some Vietnamese soldiers on the shore are like, hey, what the fuck? These guys are coming in here acting like they run the place, you know. Who do they think they are? They're not in control anymore. Really feeling themselves. And they start shooting Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. uh, ship out there. Shit. And that kind of kicks off a little skirmish mm-hmm. shoreside between pro-French and Vietnamese nationalists. But this soon dies down and the French back down and they're like, well, didn't mean to piss you off. That sort of thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. That sounds all fine and well, not very noteworthy. 
But when French high command gets word of this, they don't like, they feel disrespected. Oh, no. And so their admiral, big bad admiral Dagen Lu, hears about it. And he says, you got to respond with force. Uh, he tells them, use all means at your disposal to make yourself complete master of high fog. Oof. All right. So that's what they do. <laughs> the French tell the Vietnamese, evacuate parts of this city by this time or else face our wrath. Whoa. The Vietnamese say, no, you're not my dad. Like, <laughs> you know, dad. why should we have to listen to you? Yeah, fuck off. And so on November 22nd, France started shelling the city with their ships. Holy shit. I mean, I wonder how many wars, particularly like imperialist wars, are started by just somebody being offended and being like, you weren't respectful enough to me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Remember, that happens all the time. We talked about that in the Mexican Revolution one with the Veracruz uh -huh. thing and how they come in and they're just like, oh, they, you know, disrespected our, they arrest our guys for an hour or something. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't do the salute uh. thing. Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, this one killed 6,000 civilians. Wow, okay. It was called the Haiphong Massacre, or if you ask the French, the Haiphong Incident. <laughs> incident is always a massacre in disguise. <laughs> yeah, the incident or the affair or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's always... That's just the press release version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paris, however, was not satisfied with this bloodletting. Uh, so the French military ordered the Vietnamese to completely get the fuck out of the city, and they came in and occupied it themselves. Holy shit. The French were, you know, bent on at this point, just, hey, we're, we're, we're in fucking charge now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Vietnam was like, fuck that. Uh, mm -hmm. And Ho Chi Minh, poor guy, was still like, can't we all get along? Uh, <laughs> but his own general, Zap, was already gearing up for war. He was like, dude, yeah, no, it's popping off. It's happening. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like you've still got one member of the party trying to convince the guy. Talk. Everyone else is like, we rolled initiative already. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's time for late. battle. <laughs> <laughs> and it's December 19th. The French order the Viet Minh to completely disarm, and they just give them the finger. No way we're doing mm -hmm. that. And uh, <laughs> war off. breaks out. The city of Hanoi goes completely black, completely a blackout. Shit. And the Viet Minh from within there launch an attack out at the french who then counterattack and make them retreat and, and storm hanoi and and the government the democratic republic of vietnam goes into hiding at that point they're like well you're right i guess we did roll initiative uh we declare <laughs> you're war. right all right let's do this uh so yeah this kicks off what's called the first indochina war okay all right we're in the war part great Th those usually go fast with yeah us. yeah yeah so we'll do an overview some highlights overall uh, the Viet Minh begin by doing guerrilla warfare tactics, and the French are kind of fighting a counterinsurgency. Uh, they would send out military expeditions to try to attack Viet Minh, Viet Minh bases, but the Viet Minh mm -hmm. would retreat. Okay. One highlight of the war was in 1949, the French created the state of Vietnam. Okay. So this was a kind of a loyal member state within the French Union uh, that was technically, they called them an independent state, but it was ruled mm -hmm. by that <laughs> former puppet emperor guy. Oh my God, that guy. We should have gotten rid of Feodai, him. Feodai, he's back. 
And Ugh. now he's a puppet head of state instead of an emperor. <laughs> cool. And it claimed sovereignty over the whole of Vietnam. Okay. Even though it actually only controlled like the southern regions. <laughs> okay, great. France was still really in charge there, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1950, so just a year into its existence, not even, it was recognized as the legitimate government by good old guys, United States, United Kingdom. Yep. Uh, at that same time, Soviet Union and China said, fair play is fair play. We're recognizing the other guys uh, as the real government. Mm, nice. Speaking of whom, China, we mentioned them. Uh, mm-hmm. By 1949, the Chinese Civil War was over with a communist victory. Nice. And so they decide to come in with aid to their friends in the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Okay. Uh, Billions of dollars worth of food, of medicine, weapons, ammo, uh, other supplies coming in over the border uh, throughout the course of the war. They also, uh, just as important, I think, is is they also were providing training. Nice. uh, And refuge. So Vietnam forces on the run from the French, scoot over the border. Regroup, come back. Nice. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you also had help from the Soviet Union. Great. I was uh, wondering they, when they were going to pop in. Yeah. They supplied hundreds of trucks and parts and tires and shit like that. Weapons, uh, including like rockets. Not like big, huge rockets, but these like uh, trucks with these rocket launchers on them. Whoa. Okay. Cool. You know, all these things. They sent military advisors to train the Vietnamese troops. Uh, so them and the Chinese did that and combined that's around 2000 such advisors transforming them from just kind of a guerrilla force to mm-hmm. more like more effective and more capable as a actual like conventional army. Okay, cool. Not so cool is the other side. Uh-oh. The US <laughs> uh helping the French to yeah. maintain their colonial possessions. Sounds about right. Why they do that, you know, anti-communism basically. Yeah, yeah. They saw France as, like, one of their key allies in the European theater of things. Mm-hmm. They didn't care so much, you know, oh, these guys want to be independent, so what? Yeah. And then once the communists went in China, they're more like domino theory. Oh, no, yeah. everyone's going to catch on to the cool new fad of communism, <laughs> you know. Wonder uh, why. Yeah, I don't know why they think everyone would just jump on board to this evil totalitarian It's clearly bad thing. system. Why is everyone so into it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By 1954, the U.S. was paying 80% of the war effort for France. Holy shit. This was costing them around $3 million a day. Oh, my God. And that's like back in, like, what, the 40s? Like, that's expensive. Yeah. Uh, The U.S. sent military advisors, money, uniforms, helmets, rifles, ammo, tanks, aircraft carriers, fighter planes, bombers, maintenance crews, etc., Okay, yeah, so we were more than a little involved here. (laughs) Yeah, the CIA, of course, also made an appearance. (laughs) Yeah. 24 of their pilots flew missions to airdrop supplies to French troops under siege. Uh, Two of them end up killed in the climactic battle at the end. Uh, This fact was kept secret because they were not supposed to be there. So (laughs) that was kept secret for decades. Shit, okay. Later on, at a crucial moment, the U.S. will even offer to lend France a few tactical nuclear weapons to use holy shit yeah oh my gosh how was this treated i wonder like in the press like it didn't get out to the press even the okay. diplomats involved like 
I think the French ambassador involved like didn't take it seriously, like thought <laughs> the State Department representative was joking. I think it was um I wanna say it was a uh, fucking the brother. Dulles? Dulles. That motherfucker. I think it was Dullis that was just like, Can we lend you some nukes? And the guy was like, Haha, good joke, Dulles. <laughs> That's like, hilarious. Haha, <laughs> thanks. Um, no, I guess I meant overall though. Like how Oh. was this war being i mean it was just anti-communism i guess like right it was initially yeah. secret uh until the korean war kicks off and then mm. truman was like we got to help the korean war just like we're helping in china <laughs> by the way like, guys what? we're doing this but it was anti-communism so it was part of the broader like you know the marshall plan mm-hmm. where america was like economically helping europe out uh they also had like a military half to that like a mutual assistance thing. Mm, okay. So it's like anytime anybody's, you know, up against the wall with some communist stuff, then we're there. Help them out. Yeah. Ugh, so shitty. I'm just saying, like, anyone looking at this would be like, okay, what what do the fucking people want? And then the answer is clear. Like, the other side is fucking French people. Like, how can you be like cool with that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the French did make use of, you know, there were Vietnamese supporting. Yeah, them there and were stuff, some, but... I'm sure. But like, I'm. Well, I like the overwhelming majority had to be on the other side. Yes. Yeah, that would be true. That's insane, uh, man. Back to the kind of the course of the war. By 1951, the French were having some more success because they were able to pin down Viet Minh forces in open battles, baiting them into launching costly frontly attacks. Oh, man. Uh, the French also developed the hedgehog tactic. <laughs> Okay, it sounds cute, but I bet I won't like it. <laughs> it's not, it's yeah, it's not as cute as it sounds. <laughs> uh, basically, what they would do is set up these well defended outposts, uh, to, and then force the Viet Minh into attacking them in conventional battles. Mm. Uh, and this kind of works to a degree. Zap ends up attacking these, you know, getting kind of drawn into these battles, and he loses tons of men. Uh, and one example is the Battle of Nasan, okay, uh, where he ends up having to retreat. You know losing a whole bunch of dudes shit okay eventually though the war settles into kind of a stalemate and in those years leading up to 1954 at the end of the war the french public is gradually tiring of the war (laughs) yeah i would imagine so three million a day not cheap (laughs) yeah uh, the French government situation itself is really unstable. That's one of the big problems they have. The Fourth Republic goes through. First of all, they're in the Fourth Republic. Uh, <laughs> if you find yourself in a Fourth Republic, you might want to just take stock of what's going on. <laughs> well, they're now in the Fifth Republic. So, <laughs> oh my God, uh, they they went through seventeen different governments during the war. Wow. Okay. And so obviously, there's no consistent war plan. Mm-hmm. And you have this, the rise of this anti-war movement that grows in strength over time. It's driven by the French Communist Party, uh, by trade unions, by leftist nice. intellectuals. The good all ones. Kind of, yeah, they're all agitating against the war. You have young communist activists going out and blocking trains that are full of ammunition bound for Indochina. Holy shit. You even have reports of sabotage or people fucking with grenades to where they just go off when you pull the pin. Oh, shit. Like shit. Okay. And that was allegations. I couldn't find if that was like for real something they did or not. Mm-hmm. It's out there. Wow. I think that's really telling, though, that 17 governments came and went and all of them looked at this and were like, yep, this is the right move. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I make a parallel to, like, Afghanistan. Like, you know, for 20 yeah. years, we're just like, yeah, keep going, man. Keep it up. Mm-hmm. You're doing great. <laughs> yep. 
Yep. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, it does not matter who's in charge. We're still really into killing brown people. Yeah. And it's, you know, oh, but it's not all about presidents. It was Republicans with Republican Congress, mm-hmm. with Democratic Congress, and then vice versa. Democrats with Democrat Congress or Republican Congress. It didn't mm-hmm. matter. The arrangement. It was empire, you know? Exactly. Uh, by 1954, the anti-war movement was at its strongest. Basically, they were saying, you know, why should we continue to send people off to die, waste millions of borrowed money that we don't even have? <laughs> Saying our uh, money. You know, oppress people who are just trying to be free from imperialism. And for some of, you know, for the communists especially, for people who are trying to build like a worker state, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and why keep doing this, especially when the war is dragging on so long, there's no end in sight. What the fuck, you know? Yeah. And it's here that we see the climactic moment of the first Indochina War. It's from March to May of 1954. It's the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Okay. I have not heard of this, but tell me about it. All right. So it's the major battle of the war. The French were doing that hedgehog strategy. Mm-hmm. Plus, they were trying to put it in a disruptive spot. So their idea was, we're going to do one of those, but behind enemy lines. Oh, shit. And we're going to cut off the Viet Minh supply lines into Laos, into the neighboring uh, country there. Okay. So we're going to cut them off, set up this kind of defensive area that we that we kind of barricade in, uh, and resupply it by air. So they set up an airstrip, and they'll be able to bring in planes to resupply themselves. But we're also, you know, in doing that back there, we're going to cut off the enemy and force them to surrender. Okay. Um, were the communists, like, friends with Laos? Uh, yes. Yeah, they had been working with Laos. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But they had networks set up there. Yeah. And that was the idea. So there were some problems with this, though, because this hedgehog thing, this like they had used it at the Battle of Nassan before. Mm-hmm. It's different because back then they had the high ground. They had tons of artillery. They had tons more troops than the Vietnamese did there. Because, mm, yeah, the I guess the theory of the hedgehog is that you're so well defended. There's just you're just draining all of their resources. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, you're getting them to dash their bodies against the rocks. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, like, that only works if you're so well defended. <laughs> and setting right. it up behind enemy lines sounds like a bad idea for that. It sounds like a way to be not well defended. They thought it would work, though. So they figured we, if we set the defenses up well enough, and if we still outnumber them, then it's going to be fine. And they're mm-hmm. going to lose so many dudes out here. But the problem was, for one, like... They don't have that high ground. Dien Bien Phu, Zap famously referred to it as basically a rice bowl, is how he put it. Oh, okay. And they're in the low ground. We're on the ridges above it. The Mm -hmm. Viet Minh are ringed around the edges. The Viet Minh also, uh, Zap realized what they were doing and relocated a whole bunch of his troops secretly out to to surround this area. So he had way more troops there than the French thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the French, however, you know, they, they think everything's fine, man. We're going to get supplies <laughs> from the airfield. You know, the Viet Minh, they don't have any anti-aircraft guns, so that'll be easy. We're going to keep the enemy troops at bay because we've got artillery and these guys don't have many artillery pieces either. That'll be easy. They're going to just throw waves of idiots up here to, to and we'll just mow them down. Boom, yep. boom, boom. Uh, and, you know, we'll be back home in a month with stories fine. to tell about killing people. You know, easy peasy. <laughs> Unbeknownst to France, the Viet Minh had plenty of firepower. Whoops. They had successfully, uh, with the help of their Chinese allies who were supplying 
a lot of the guns that they were using Mm -hmm. and the help of the peasants, you know, that Mao said you have to be able to swim amongst the peasants. They were definitely doing that. Oh, nice. They had peasants helping them smuggle in piece by piece, day and night, disguised under these like thickets of uh, branches and shit like that, artillery weapons and uh, anti-aircraft guns. Holy shit. Okay. And they were smuggling in all this shit secretly. Yeah. Through mountainous terrain. And sometimes they would dig tunnels through the mountains to get them secretly put in, aimed just perfectly at the enemy, at the cow. French positions. That's crazy. Yeah, they had them dug in like so that basically the French couldn't even shoot at them. Like even if they saw where they were, they were just like, yeah, but we can't get to that. Wow. Okay. Once he has all these pieces in place, Zap launches the attack March 13th, focuses his fire on the airstrip and knocks it out, gets it to where the French can't even use that for resupply nice. or for medical evacuations. And so instead they have to rely on parachuted supplies, which is like way less accurate. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so then he, you know, the trap is sprung. Let's go. Uh, they start digging trenches around and then slowly like move those in closer to the French who they've got, you know, besieged here. Mm-hmm. They are raining down artillery all the while on the French who are just like, holy fuck, they've got artillery. <laughs> yeah, what the you fuck? Know? That wasn't supposed to happen. And meanwhile, monsoon rains open up. Ooh. And these guys are in what was a dust bowl and is now a mud hole. Oh, shit. Okay. And the French troops start deserting. Nearly 4,000 of them end up fleeing to nearby caves, just kind of like poking out and and stealing their own supply drops for themselves. Oh, my God. Okay. And yeah, it's it's a mess. It's referred to by some of the French soldiers that survived it as 57 days of hell. Jesus. Yeah, sounds like it. And the battle eventually drifts in favor of the Viet Minh. They get a crucial reinforcement from the Chinese allies and slowly advance on the ever-tiring French troops. Nice. And on May the 7th, uh, the French, the remaining French garrison, some of them had gone out like madmen. and like Yeah, they're had, like, we're gone. <laughs> some of the French Foreign Legion, anyway, like took off on these essentially suicide runs of just trying to break out. Oh, fuck. And they would, you know, just try to break the line and like, sometimes they would just get completely decimated or like, you know 17 guys would make it through or something yeah uh out of the whole four but yeah the ones that were left surrendered may 7th this is a tenth of french manpower in all of indochina surrendering to the Viet Minh. wow yeah so this is the major battle in all up to 2300 french soldiers are killed Many more missing and captured vietnamese side they lost between 4000 and 8000 holy shit killed uh it's kind of rough estimates and you know many more of course wounded and missing and stuff so mm-hmm. yeah very bloody battle yeah Oof. but it's decisive yeah yeah over the course of the war the there's also the question of civilians mm-hmm. both sides killed civilians it seems like mm-hmm. uh, there are estimates and i am not sure the bias on the sources i really didn't check in too much of that so if anybody wants to chime in and say yeah but that was a bullshit source that's fine yeah um but as far as i could tell Viet Minh are estimated to kill between fifty thousand to hundred thousand civilians Oof, during okay. the war and the french between 60 and two hundred fifty thousand civilians. i mean not great numbers on either side there i mean yeah. even the low ends just right not great. so you know there's that more yeah. as hell as they say yeah 
But that was the end of the first Indochina War. The French effectively losing. They could have kept fighting, I guess, but Dien Bien Phu had sort of shown that the war would keep going. I mean, like, you you know, even if they had retreated, they would just do the same thing somewhere else, you know? Exactly, yeah. Like, they hadn't, they showed they had enough firepower, enough support. Like, you don't want to keep going with this, bro. Right, yeah, yeah. And the French people don't want to keep going, you know? Mm-hmm, and that's, mm-hmm. I don't know, to me it's interesting because it's something we'll see again and again is, like, the way to win isn't necessarily defeat all the guys, you know, kill all your opponents on the battlefield. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kill enough of them, but it's like, it's you're achieving political objectives through your military activities. Like, yeah, win or don't lose too badly until your opponent has to give up and go home. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at that point, France was done. You know, their people were like, fuck it, we are not doing any more war. And, and the people in charge knew that they had a change in government again, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they end up going to something called the Geneva Conference. Okay. From April to July of 1954, uh, where they're, you know, they're going to decide the Indochina issue. All right. How does that go? Well, the cast of characters, you've got France, of course, you've got the two Vietnams, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and the state of Vietnam. Which one is, sorry, real quick, which one is which again? So the Democratic Republic of Vietnam is the Viet Minh side. Yes. All right. The communists. Yes. And the state of Vietnam, that's the French puppet one. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. I don't know. The nationalist one, if you want to be more generous, I guess. <laughs> it's cool. Then you have the Soviet Union. All right. Uh, the People's Republic of China. Okay. Uh, the United States. Damn it. Who Uni- invited them? The United Kingdom. <laughs> and uh, the representatives from what's going to become Laos and Cambodia. Okay. And they end up uh, kind of negotiating backroom dealing, all this stuff. And they come to an agreement for the French to withdraw and to temporarily partition Vietnam mm. in two. Okay. This time at the 17th parallel. Okay. So the North would be under the control of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. So the communist side. The South would be the state of Vietnam, which is now fully independent. Actually, Mm -hmm. it's no longer controlled by (laughs) France. There's no more French people there. Okay. And that would be, yeah. So the state of Vietnam would be in the South. Okay. And they they would, it's temporary. July 1956, they would have elections to create a unified Vietnamese state. Interesting. So if the state one was a puppet, really, how, why would they keep it split? Like there, there hadn't, there wasn't that much popular support for it. Was there? There was somewhat, Mm -hmm. there were, I think, especially in the cities in the South and especially among the Catholic minority, Mm. there was substantial support. Okay. There was, you know, barely any in the in the north. Over, yeah. And there was somewhat in the central. And in the south, you had kind of the bastion of support there. And that had kind of always been the case. Uh, it's not, I mean, especially in the countryside, it's a lot less popular, the, 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 the state, state of Vietnam. Thing. Yeah, because probably they'd been provided for more by the Viet Minh. Because yes. they were very, like, mm-hmm. pro-peasant. Whereas the cities were like, I'm like part of the bourgeoisie like i want to do my own thing kind of yeah and that's you know a little oversimplified there's a mix throughout yeah yeah uh, but that's 
more or less, I think, the dynamic there. Okay. The South complained, like they uh, didn't like this, <laughs> but the the DRV was pleased with this, which kind of sounds surprising because like, why don't they just keep pushing, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think they were kind of being realistic. So the French, I mean, at this at the time of the negotiations, like we're still negotiating that they get out. Uh, they still have a ton <laughs> of troops in the in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, we said that was a tenth of their fighting force. Okay, the other nine tenths are there. Yeah, exactly. Like they're they're focused on big goal of like let's get the French out and like. I bet they were also banking on like, well, we'll be popular enough to win that election, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's one thing is they think that like it, when they have the election, they're probably going to win because mm-hmm. they're very popular in the northern half and then like, you know, popular enough and the northern half had more people. Mm-hmm. So that would oh, I mean, yeah, if it's a yeah. nationwide election. Then boom, you win. Yeah. That was the idea anyway. They were also worried about keeping the Americans out already. Mm. It already looked like maybe <laughs> the, they might decide that it's, you know, too much communism and they're going to jump in. Yeah. They saw some, some glints and some eyes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, when they go to the party Congress to talk about this, Ho Chi Minh is like, oh, we got to, you know, we got to do yeah, this. Take it. Like we can. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, he wins over a room and they do it. Yeah. Now, we say most of the countries present signed on to this. Mm-hmm. The ones that did not were, we said, the state of Vietnam. They didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to be partitioned. They were like, no, but we control the whole country, even though they didn't really. You know, they wanted <laughs> the whole thing for no, just for being there. Yeah. And the U.S. was the other one. Uh-oh. The U.S. didn't like the partition for one, but they also didn't like the election because they thought that, hey, this this is not good. Our own CIA reports that, like, the Viet Minh and Ho Chi Minh are very popular. Whoops. That the nationalist government, the South, the state of Vietnam doesn't really have that much popular support and is kind of unstable. They had they had reports from before we were really even in there that said, <laughs> like, this was this is fucked up, but... And their solution was, let's just not have elections. Let's just put these guys in power. If you find yourself saying, let's just not have elections, maybe, (laughs) again, take some stock. You know, get right with yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think that's where we'll leave it. For now, the war was over. Vietnam was free, if divided. Its fate is kind of, it's in its own hands for for now. And we'll see how that pans out. (laughs) okay well i'm curious to see how this shakes out (laughs) uh very concerned about the united states kind of you know rubbing their their chins and and thinking anti-communist thoughts so yeah i picture them at the i picture them at the geneva conference like you know the old cartoons where you'd have like a predatory like carn- carnivorous character and they're looking at another character and they see him as like a big ham. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That's funny. That's yeah. what they're doing here. They got their wolf eyes on. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So what are some concluding thoughts that we have, I guess, so far in the story? I know it's a lot. I think it is important to emphasize like the colonial and imperial nature of this whole series of conflicts because Mm -hmm. 
I think it's very tempting for people just to reduce conflicts to like, this is good and this is bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. So well, this like, is communism versus anti-communism. Yeah. Like there's a reason someone ends up doing these things, you know, like, mm-hmm. like this didn't come from nowhere. And, and again, I'm still thinking about parallels just because it's in the news a lot with, with Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Th- this didn't just happen. Like we, we did this to ourselves and to them. Like it, it does not happen in a vacuum. In a similar vein, when France does decide we're not going to be in Indochina anymore, you know, we're going to let Vietnam do its thing. It's because the people there would no longer support it. Like mm-hmm. the military had technically had the strength to stay there as long as they wanted to, not to necessarily to win, but to be there. Yeah. And it's like when people say, oh, well, you know, we're letting Afghanistan fall. And yeah, it's going to be a, a shitty situation for them for a while, it looks like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, you know, we could leave American troops there for however, you know, for another 20 years. Yeah. Like another that's 40 not years. a solution it's not either. change anything. <laughs> yeah. And we're, you know, we can do that for as long as you want. It's mm, empire doesn't really have a solution to the yeah, problems. There's no that natural it's way <laughs> to get rid of it. Like, it's not just like eventually they'll evolve and get their own independence and be chill. It's like, that's not how that happens. Like, it, it's going to be bloody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's just going to happen. Yeah. Ho Chi Minh seems cool. I like how persuasive he is. He's super persuasive. He's got some sort of feet or <laughs> yeah. What kind of trait. class is he? Like a merchant? Well, not a merchant because he's communist. What would be high charisma stat? Usually that's a bard, but folk hero. That's one of the backgrounds. Oh, definitely. Yeah, because like the peasants like you, and they'll they'll offer you stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's got mm. that. I'm sure. Yeah. Did he ever play <laughs> a musical instrument? He could be our first bard of the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't just, I don't know about that. I lean toward no. I don't think so, but. He could be oratory. Bards can also do oratory. Yeah. One of my favorite characters I rolled was an oratory bard, which is give inspiring speeches. This is a very D&D heavy episode. (laughs) Uh, I don't think I have any other questions. Uh, You know, just the, the usual conclusion of imperialism sucks. Imperialism sucks. Always be working toward the toward taking down empires, even when it looks hopeless. Brand recognition is important. Yeah, brand recognition. <laughs> Get out there, do Get good shit. There, be, a, be, be the seen. good kind of communist, like not the annoying douchey ones. Yes, yeah. Be the good kind. Help each other. Work with disparate groups sometimes when you have a bigger enemy that you need to take down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know. They're doing it right. And they're, and they're messing up, too, we see. I mean, like, you know, yeah. they're executing people and stuff, and they're purging people from the ranks sometimes. Uh, we're not saying that they're doing 100% perfect, but... But, I mean, good lessons to be learned. Yeah, that's the thing, is you want to, you know, you don't want to just, what is it, Monday morning quarterback it, you know, and say, oh, this is, you know, you're bad because you did this one thing. Like, take the, you know, learn the good. I think that's also a symptom of our culture right now. Like, not to be all like, mm, cancel culture. Uh, but- yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a a definite, like, one thing that's been really hot on Twitter right now is the discourse on queer stories and, like, people basically policing queer storytellers being like, well, your character is bad because X, Y, Z. And it's like, we're allowed to have complicated characters. Like, we're allowed to have, like, imperfect stories, especially yeah. if it's, like, my own fucking story. Then, like, fuck off, you know? Like, 
you can't like dictate that. And there's this like really intense, like expectation on like queer and black and like just marginalized people to Mm -hmm. tell their stories perfectly in a way that doesn't have anything problematic. And I'm like, well then it's not a very good story. Probably (laughs) like what kind of fucking story is that? Yeah, that's yeah. I I agree. That's strange is again, kind of like the, the perfect character versus a flawed character in some way. And, yeah, like there's this pressure to be wholesome, I think, in the queer community where it's like, I mean, but not everything is for children. you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Who wants to only consume like just stories with happy endings? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like we're more complicated than that. And like, I guess my, my point from that is that there is a desire to reduce everyone down to like these extremely palatable versions. Right. And it's like, yeah, we don't need that. Like we, we can nuance guys. <laughs> right. There, there, like, aren't any saints, it's just complete, not perfect people that you can look up to on the communist side, on the capital side, anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. everyone fucks up, so. Except you know. for cats. Cats are perfect. True, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can always worship a cat. I'll uphold Marxism, Leninism, catism. <laughs> all right, cool. I'm excited for part two. Thanks for doing all this research. Uh, yeah, it was fun. You know, again, one of those (laughs) rabbit hole ones, but I, I, I made it. (laughs) Nice. You came out the other side of the rabbit hole. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Covered in dirt. Okay. Well, obviously next time we'll be doing part two of this. So gear up for that. All right. In the meantime, if you're craving more of that sweet, sweet communist content, you can follow us online. We are on Twitter at teach communism Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Um, all those places are great for episode questions. Um, if you were confused about something we covered, or if you want a clarification, if you have a correction, if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, all that shit, send it our way. Yes, for real. We like the input. Love it. If you want to praise us in public, which I hope you do, you can, I mean, like, tell your friends in real life. That's cool. We got a really cute email <laughs> about, like, a friend group that listens to us. And I was like, oh, I'm flattered. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That is a great way to help people find the show. Even if you're an Apple user, you can do it. doesn't take long. Uh, rate and review. And, yeah, that really helps us out. Yes, please. Our esteem also appreciates <laughs> your your praises. I need it. Um, (laughs) I'm working on not needing it. That's called therapy. All right. (laughs) Sorry, Copper's chewing his toenails. My dog does this thing where he just like grabs onto a toenail with his teeth and just yanks at it. And it really is just upsetting. Dang. Both like to listen to and to visualize all of it. Just, yeah. (laughs) It's really bad. I have a nail phobia, so I I don't enjoy it. Ooh, I had a dream where I lost a nail. Oh, it's the worst. It was it was good to be awake after that. I was yeah, like, for oh, sure. Ugh, nasty. Anyway, so sorry if you hear my dog in the background doing a <laughs> disgusting pedicure, <laughs> medieval <laughs> pedicure. We are also on YouTube. If that's how you like to listen to podcasts, or if that's you know somebody you know, that's how they do it. They're like, I want to listen to a podcast. Be like, fine, try this. 
And finally, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. And for five bucks a month, you get access to not only this week's fresh notes from Grady, which I've been following along with, and they're very good because I'm both an auditory and visual learner. Thank you. But you also get access to the backlog, which is just a handy resource. Like, I had a question the other day, and I was just able to look it up immediately. Like, it's very nice to have. Awesome. I'm glad that's still paying off. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end of the year, the funds from that, all of it, not just like profit, like literally all of it, will go to a local mutual aid fund in the Dallas area. So, ain't on us. Hell yeah. Do your part. uh, Build... Build that brand. <laughs> yes. Build your brand as we're for some reason calling it. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm brainwashed. <laughs> yeah. Do your part to help your comrades. Speaking of brand, I do want to work on t-shirts at some point. I'm, I'm teasing that now mostly so I'll get off my ass and actually do it. So, <laughs> so this is how I hold well, myself accountable. That's all you. So yeah. I mean, hey, I could edit this out and change my mind. So I've got the power. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Edit it to me like, no, that's fine. I'll do it. See, you already have the clip right there. (laughs) There you go. Perfect. (laughs) I can just make you sound dumb the entire time. Be great. That's the power you hold. It is. It is. I've actually thought about that. Like, what if if we're ever guests on something, I'm gonna have to be like, listen, I do a lot of editing to make myself sound smarter. I'm trusting (laughs) you with a big and they're like, we don't do any editing. Like, it's pure you. Like, Fuck. <laughs> Everyone's going to know how much I actually say um and like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and start over mid-sentence. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for being a great student today. Yeah, thanks for teaching me. And thank you, dear, dear listeners out there. Yeah, uh, you guys for tuning are cool. in. Yeah, you guys are great. Uh, you can catch us next week on another episode of Teach Me Communism where the class struggle is always in session. Bye. Bye. Copper, stop it. Stop it.